This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. This morning, I would like to speak with you. Um, I, it's, it's interesting, you know, if you, you preach a lot, sometimes you have a message that you want to preach. And I had prepared last week for Sunday's message. And um, I thought, okay, I'm going to do double duty. You may do this. And I'm going to do double duty. I'm going to prepare for Sunday. And I'm going to preach this message in chapel on Wednesday. And, and then I got home from church on Sunday. And, and, and as you know, the events, um, the events in Texas unfolded. And I thought, you know, I really, I really want to speak on this topic. And it's having come off, uh, uh, off of a, uh, a I don't, I people want to call it MACP, E3PC, uh, on apologetics, knowing that this topic has probably been handled in one degree or another in different sessions. I thought, well, it's going to be rehash. But, you know, as, as a gospel grunt in Hamtramck, this issue comes up time and time again. When you give the gospel out to people, you get certain objections all the time. You know, when you, when you reach out to Muslims, you're going to get the same objections all the time. You know, it really, you can just hit a button and kind of give them the same information. Uh, but when we try to reach out uh, into the community with the gospel, the issue of tragedy and suffering is something that comes up often. And so, so Sunday morning, we uh, got home from worship, uh, and we learned about the events in Sutherland Springs. And this is from the New York Times. One minute the Holcombs were a tight-knit family praying in the tiny church on 4th Street. The next, eight of them were gone. Brian and Carla Holcomb, a guest preacher and his wife, were dead. Their son, Mark Daniel Holcomb, gone. Their pregnant daughter-in-law, Crystal Holcomb, gone. And four of their grandchildren, Noah, Emily, Megan, and Greg, gone. If you're a member of a small church, this really hits home. Now, granted, he was the guest speaker, and this were his this is his family. But you know, if you are a part of a small church, you understand how tightly knit you are as a group. And, and then one minute to have half of your congregation gone is devastating. Twenty six people in all were killed when David P. Kelly, a violent and troubled preacher of atheism, opened fire on Sunday at the First Baptist Church in a small Texas town, including the child Crystal was carrying, officials said. According to the Wilson County Sheriff, Joe Tackett Jr., as many as half the victims were children. And the gunman nearly wiped out uh, the Holcomb family, leaving Joe Holcomb, 86, Brian's father, to mourn the loss of the generations he had raised. He says, we know where they are now, he said in an interview, his voice strained by exhaustion. All of our family members, they're all Christian, and it won't be long until we're with them. The aftermath of a tragedy such as the mass shooting in Sutherland results in a unified national why. The atheist that denies the existence of God begins to launch his assaults against the God who, in their mind, does not exist. If there was a God, he can't be good because a good God would not allow such a tragedy. And if God exists, then he cannot possibly be good. How many times have we heard that argument? It is a constant, constant refrain. Let's set the atheist argument aside for a minute and consider those who are not followers of Jesus Christ, yet they acknowledge the existence 
of some higher controlling power. And let's also consider those who are followers of Jesus Christ. The question still lingers, whether you're an atheist or a Christian, is why, God, why do you allow something like this to happen? Are you really in control of everything? And if you are in control of everything, then how could you let this happen? Even those of us who embrace the glory of God in all things, including his sovereign plan, even we have a hard time uh, processing the Sutherland tragedy through our theological grid. And what's the cliche response that you're going to get from milquetoast Christians? What is it going to be? We know that God has a purpose in all this. Well, yeah, that may be true, okay? That may be true. But is that the response that you're going to give to the mourning person that you've been called to minister to that just lost a child unexpectedly? Or, or, or to, the, the, to the person on the street that you, you stop and you're having a conversation with and you say, hey, you know, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus Christ. You're going to talk to me about God right now, the same God who allowed Sutherland Springs to happen? Well, let's talk about that for a minute. You know, the more scripturally acquainted believer might quote Romans 8, 28. We know that God works all things together for good. Or God causes all things to work together for good. And, and then they go, oh yeah, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, that may not apply to, to, to you all the time. Because you haven't been called according to his purpose. I don't know that you love him or not. So as pastors... And future pastors, times of crises like what transpired on Sunday are moments that we either dread because we ourselves aren't sure how to respond or embrace because we have yet another opportunity, a window of opportunity to speak the truth of the gospel. This is something that you're going to have to deal with. That's why this last uh, pastor's conference was so good. I really, I mean, kudos to whoever organized it. It was really good. It's not that the ones in the past were bad, okay? It's all good. Like all the seminary courses are good, you know. But it's such a such a needful topic for us to discuss. How, how do we give a reason for the hope that lies within us? How do we do that? And and Sunday just resurfaces the need for us to understand how to do that. So if you would open up your Bibles to Luke chapter thirteen. Luke chapter thirteen. I don't have an original thought. I try to give credit when I know I take it right from somebody, okay? So, like they, they call it plagiarism when you use one person's work. They call it research when you use many people's work, right? Is that how it works? So, forgive me if what I say sounds like some. I don't have a, a I don't have a original thought. Luke 13, 1 through 5. Now, as we look at Luke 13, a crowd is gathered around Jesus, and and at times he's speaking to the crowd, and it looks like at times he speaks, he speaks directly to his disciples in, in Luke chapter 12. And here at the beginning of Luke 13, um, we, we see that um, uh, some people in the crowd um, ask Jesus a question. They're, they're discussing um, what's going on. And, and so Jesus gives a response to that. Okay, um, In Luke 13, 1, we're told that the crowd simply informs Jesus of a tragic instance leaked to some type of revenge retribution on the part of Pilate against the Jews. And then there's this other event at the Tower of Siloam. 
And so we're given Jesus' response. Let's look at Luke 13, 1 through 5. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. All right, so, you know, not the, are they informing Jesus of new information? Or, you know, or have they been, you know, having this debate on the side concerning, concerning what something Jesus has said that this comes up? We, we don't know. They, they just bring this up. And Jesus has an answer uh, to this situation that happened uh, somewhere around the temple or in the temple. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all perish. Are those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. And and so Jesus brings up another situation. And we see a little bit of the workings of, of why tragedy and suffering occur and what the response is supposed to be. Why does tragedy occur? What purpose and where can we find comfort in suffering? What I'd like to do this morning is just go through the issue of tragedy and suffering. It's going to be quick, okay? It has to be superficial. But I want to offer reasons why I believe Christianity gives the, the best response to tragedy and suffering. Again, I'm a gospel grunt, so we will end up with the gospel. Social theorist Max Schleyer, or Schleyer, I'm not sure how to say his name, wrote this. An essential part of the teachings and directives of the great religions and philosophical thinkers the world over has been on the meaning of pain and suffering. He goes on to say, every society has chosen some version of these teachings so as to give its members instructions to encounter suffering correctly, to suffer properly, or to suffer or to move suffering on to another plane. So, so that quotation is taken from Tim Keller's book, okay, and his book on suffering, which is very good. I recommend it. I like Tim Keller. Uh, it's an excellent book. And, and what I'd like to do first is offer up some non-Christian worldviews that have tried to address the issue of suffering. Uh, and, and then I would like to offer up some Bible-based, not-so-biblical uh, approaches to the, to the issue of suffering. And then what I think the answer is. Uh, that we need to give as pastors is. And, and so I'm going to have to move through these rather quickly, okay? And so the first view, okay, and I'm trying to address most of the world's population and how they view tragedy and suffering, all right? So first we look at the moralistic view, uh, the view embraced probably by Hinduism. Not probably, it is embraced by Hinduism, okay? Pain and suffering result from not living properly. If you're suffering now, right, you're most likely getting what you deserve from the form, this former life, right? There's this, this karma, right? You get bad because you've done bad. You get good because you do good, right? And so fear-based karma is going to say, bam, you're being punished because you did, got, you did bad, all right? Uh, but, but love-based karma is going to say, okay, you're getting something bad. Let's learn from it so that you can move on to a higher plane. But there's this tit-for-tat understanding in Hinduism. Okay, you're getting your, your pain and your tragedy, your suffering is, is from your actions. You've done wrong things. Well, then there's this issue of Buddhism, right? And we can call this self-trans- the self-transcendent view. In this understanding, suffering comes not from 
past deeds, but from unfulfilled desires. If you're suffering, it's because you're not eliminating the desires that have fostered, that are fostered by the material part, right? If you're suffering this morning from hunger, you have a wrong desire for food, and you need to eliminate that desire for food, and then you won't deal with the issue of hunger. And so really the issue is, is that of desires, right? And, and Buddhism came from, from uh, Siddhartha Gautama, trying to address the issue of suffering. This, this whole religion comes from, well, how do we deal with suffering? And, and these four tenets, ordinary life begin, uh, brings about suffering. Their origin of suffering is attachment. The cessation of suffering is attainable. Suffering can cease by following the Eightfold Path. And really, you just have to get rid of your desires. Okay, so you have karma, you have Buddhism, Hinduism, Buddhism. And then you have uh, what I would call... The fatalistic view, or it, it is called fatalistic view, and the Stoics really looked at tragedy and suffering this way, and really Islam, when we deal with tragedy and suffering in Hamtramck with the Muslims, it's, it's this issue of fatalism. The circumstances of life, especially suffering, are set by the stars, supernatural forces, the doom of gods, or as in Islam, the inscrutable will of Allah. I mean, the inscrutable will of Allah is, is everything in Islam. A, I've got a friend, he ministers in Morocco, and uh, he was traveling down to a, a city in the south to drop off some Bibles, and along the way they came upon a car accident. It had just occurred, and so he gets out of the car, and he runs over to see what he can do to help, he and his brother, and there is a baby that had been ejected from the car, gasping for, for life, and, and my friend didn't know what to do. He just picked up the baby, hoping he could do something. And the thing, and the, the baby eventually died, sadly. Um, the thing that really struck him the most was that the the people around him weren't doing anything, and 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 they were saying, "It is it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written." I mean, so attached were they to the inscrutable will of law, and they believed that that's exactly where tragedy and suffering came. That. That this is what happened. If the baby's going to die, the baby's going to die. Then we have the humanistic view. I call it secular humanistic atheism. right? And so in, in this view, everything happens because of random chance. The reason we have, uh, you know, obviously the reason we have sickness is because of all evolution, there's mutations, and so you have sickness and you have, you have death, you know, and then you have, we're having... Uh, tornadoes because somehow or earthquakes somehow there's fracking that's gone on and we've caused all these natural disasters in one way or another the humanistic view everything is just random chance suffering has no intelligible relation to any plot except chaotic interruption and so those are four very brief general Views that I think encompass a great deal of the population in our world, right? So the moralistic view, you're suffering because there's wrongdoing. What do you do? Well, you do good and wrong won't happen to you. Resolution, hopefully you can break out of this cycle of, you know, cycle of existence and unite with the one being, right? So Buddhism, you're just attached too much. Life is illusionary. One day you'll be enlightened and you won't deal with suffering and pain anymore. Fatalism. There is a destiny, the inscrutable will of Allah. We just have to endure it throughout life. And one day, hopefully, 
hopefully, if we do what's right, we'll wind up in paradise. And then there's the humanistic secular view. Everything's accidental, chaotic. You know, really, you just have to learn how to deal with life, a better technique at handling life, and, and then we'll build a better society and there'll be less problems. Well, that's the world apart from any understanding of the Bible. Now, let's just quickly look at what I would call non-biblical, Bible-based worldviews of dealing with tragedy and suffering. And here in the text, in Luke chapter 13, obviously, Jesus says there's a problem here. Your way of thinking about tragedy and suffering is wrong. He says there, look in the text in verse 2. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Right? And then in verse 4, about the Tower of Siloam, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? This is Bible-based moralism. In their minds, there was a direct link between the sins that people had committed, their sin debt, and the fact that they had suffered in this tragedy. Right? If you were to flip it on its head and look at people who are blessed, right? People who are blessed, uh, you know, according to the Bible in the Old Testament, you know, they're, they're blessed because they're not sinning. God has given them land. God has given them children. God has given them crops, and he's given them livestock. That's why they're not suffering, because they're living in obedience. You know, the mindset here in Luke 13 is not isolated to the Gospels, right? We remember the count in, in, in John chapter 9 of the man blind from birth, right? John uh, 9, verse 1, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And so there was this, this moralism in the mind of the disciples and, and, the, and the, the audience that Jesus was speaking to. I wouldn't call it karma, but it was definitely a, a misunderstanding of how God works. That suffering was directly related to sin, and possibly not just the sin of the person, but the sin of the parents and the grandparents. Right? And this shouldn't be surprising to us, right? If we le- read the Decalogue, Exodus chapter 20, right? When, when the commandment's given, Exodus 20 verse 5, you know, hey, if you don't obey this, then your, your generation will suffer and the next generation will suffer. It says the same thing in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. And so clearly the Bible talks about punishment that extends into other generations, okay? But Jesus is trying to change the way that his disciples are thinking. And his audience was thinking. And, and really, when we look at the book of Job, right, this is the faulty thinking of Job and his comforters, right? In Job chapter 5, Eliphaz, right, the famous quote that everybody, everybody brings uh, to the table when they're talking about suffering is in this passage, Job 5, 6 through 7. For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward, right? He said, look, trouble just doesn't come from nowhere, Right? There's not this spontaneous generation of trouble. Trouble comes because you've sown evil, and you're going to get what you deserve. Eliphaz says, Bildad's no better. When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin, right? Reflecting on why Job's children died. Why? Well, there must have been sin there. And Zophar, Job chapter 11, talks about hidden or concealed sin. If God comes along and confines you in a prison and convenes a court, who can oppose him? Surely God recognizes deceivers, and when he sees evil, does he not take note 
Right? And so in the mind of Job's friends, the issue for Job, the tragedy, the suffering in his life was what? Was his sin. It's no different than what Jesus was dealing with in Luke chapter 13. There was in the minds of Job's friends a retribution principle, an overdeveloped, I would say, principle of sowing and reaping. And they had an underdeveloped haymartiology, right? Because really, if we got what we deserved, the conversation would have ended in Genesis chapter 3. Really, if you want to talk about just desserts. The book of Job is important, I believe, because its very premise is that God is beyond figuring out when it comes to tragedy and suffering. Pat answers will not do when it comes to tragedy and suffering. Personally, I believe the book of Job is to teach us that there is a mystery in the wisdom of God, which includes innocent suffering, and that we have to trust God in the suffering because we can't understand God. Right? In, in the book of Job, what's on trial? God's justice is on trial. Satan comes up to him, you know, and, and, and God brings up Job. Hey, have you noticed my servant Job? As the conversation goes on, well, he's good because you give him good. Come on. Your system of justice, the way it operates, he's always going to do good because you always bless him. Take away his blessings and then see what happens. Not only did Job's friends think wrongly about God, but Job's thinking needed to be adjusted as well. At one level, Job did believe in such a retribution principle. But in his mind, if it did exist, well, then God must be changing the rules on the fly. Right? See, Job's problem was he did. He agreed with his friends about this retribution principle to a degree because why else would he be begging God for this court scene where he could defend himself, right? In Job chapter 31, oh, that if I had someone to hear me, I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of every step. Right? So Job, still he, he had this, this retribution principle going on, this, this sense of, of moralism. Right? And we, we know at the end of Job where God brings Job to. Who are you to question the Almighty? Right? There are no pat answers when it comes to the issue of tragedy and suffering. And so I think those are, um, that is a, a Bible-based moralism that's not biblical when it comes to the issue of tragedy and suffering. Now, yes, we do suffer consequences because of our sin. There is tragedy that occurs because of sin. I get that. But there are times when 2004, the tsunami right, wipes out thousands and thousands of people. Why? All those people were sinners? Well, no. Sutherland Springs, Texas. Almost an entire family. Most of the people who died were children. Why? Were they more sinful than the rest of the people in the room? Now, there's another Bible-based unscriptural way of thinking and and i think this is important for us to understand i first started thinking about this in in dr ben edwards session this issue of moral therapeutic deism are you guys familiar with that 2005 christian smith and melinda denton these, these are both sociologists they published the results of a research in their book entitled soul searching the religious and spiritual lives of american teenagers 
They write this in the book. A significant part of Christianity in the United States is actually only tenuously Christian in any sense that is seriously connected to the actual historical Christian tradition, but has rather substantially morphed into Christianity's misbegotten step-cousin, Christian moral therapeutic deism. This is the result of doctrine not being preached in churches. This is the result of only a, a soft-sell gospel being preached in churches. The basic tenets of Christian moral, moralistic therapeutic deism include this. There is a God who exists, who created and ordered the world, and watches over human life on earth. Right? There is a God. We'll, we'll grant you that. God wants people to be nice. He wants them to be moral. Just like other religions. The central goal of life is what? What is the central goal of life? Be happy. Be fulfilled. Find your purpose in life. God does not need to be involved in someone else's life unless God is needed to resolve a problem. This is another tenet. And then good people go to heaven when they die. So, so for, for the young people, and this is a broad swipe, a general swipe, and these... This is based on research that they've done, the mindset of teens. When they deal with tragedy and suffering, here's what they might say. Well, if you ask this, a young person, about why does tragedy happen? Why is there suffering? Well, tragedy happens because, well, God, God knows why, and, and he's, he's working things out. I, I know that he's there, and he's there when I need him, and, and so I'm just going to keep paying it forward, and I'm going to pray. Tim Keller, in his, uh, his book on suffering, says this. He refers to, to moral therapeutic deism. He refers to it as residual Christianity. I find that interesting. Residual Christianity. That's what the depraved mind keeps when it goes into a sermon. He says this. This moral therapeutic deism, Tim Keller says this about it, he says, it's the worst possible pre-existing condition in which to encounter suffering. We have set a whole generation of kids up for failure when it comes to dealing with tragedy and suffering. Right, so tragedy and suffering comes into a young person's life, and they say, well, and I've heard this before in our community, right? This isn't working out for me. I, I'm not sure why, why I keep praying. My prayers aren't being answered. God is distant. God just wants me to be happy, and I'm not happy now. I need to go see my therapist. Tim Keller goes on to say that it's better to be an atheist than to cling to residual Christianity, right? And atheists just accept things. It's just random, chaotic activity. You see the homeless person on the street? Well, hey, you know, it just that's the way it is. Let's just deal with it now. There's no soul searching about God. Why is this person homeless? Why did all those people die in Sutherland, Texas? It's just random chaos. We need more gun laws. Keller concludes. In this point, he says, in short, theism without certainty of salvation or resurrection is far more disillusioning in the midst of pain than is atheism. When suffering, believing in God thinly or even or just in the abstract, it's worse than not believing in God at all. This is a what I would call Bible based, non-biblical way of understanding tragedy and suffering. And it's, it's out there. It's out there. We, we, we inherited a bunch of people from a church that was there before us. 
and came into our group, this was their mindset. They began to flake off. Why? Because life got difficult. And their residual Christianity in the midst of the struggles they were facing didn't serve them well. So both Bible-based moralism and moralistic therapeutic deism, they missed the mark, right? In Luke 13, Jesus recenters the argument, turning our attention to what is most important. He gives us a biblical worldview to guide us as we cope with tragedy and suffering. So let's look back at the text. Okay, and, and Jesus, in verses 3 and 5 of Luke 13, he gives a succinct, proper biblical response to the issue of tragedy and suffering. All right, what's the response? Very clearly, unless you repent, you too will perish. Verse 5, unless you repent, you too will perish. So, so Jesus right here is cutting through the smoke and mirrors. All right? When you go out and share the gospel with somebody, okay, and they don't really, really want to hear about it, they're going to offer up some issues. Right, And one of them is going to be, why does God let evil happen? Right, And, and Jesus says, look, I don't, know, I don't know if he says this or not, but they bring up this topic of what happened at the temple, at the Tower of Siloam, why this happened. Jesus says, look, you know what? That was a bad thing. You're thinking about that's wrong. You need to think about yourself. You need to repent of your sins. And so he cuts through all the smoke in the mirrors. The dead were dead and nothing could be done, but his listeners, they could repent. And obviously, they hadn't repented yet because he calls them to repentance. So, as we reach out to people, remember, the smoke and mirrors, you've got to get rid of them. They need to hear that they need to repent. And, and, and granted, that's kind of a, it seems like a cold thing. You need to repent. But that is their greatest need. And Jesus, being Jesus, could say that and make his point better than we can. And so there's much more that we need to probably include as we address the issue of suffering and tragedy. We must give a response of hope. Right? In, G- in John chapter 9, right, when, when the dis- issue of the blind man's brought up, you know, it wasn't because somebody sinned. It's so that the glory of God, the, the works of God could be revealed, right? But we're not going to heal somebody from blindness. We're not going to... You know, we're not going to, you know, take away the pain they're in physically. We can't do that. All right. And so Jesus was referring to that. I've seen John chapter nine, the glory of God is going to be revealed now through my works. But the Christian response as we look at why in the midst of tragedy and suffering, I think is superior to the other worldviews because we begin by addressing the issue of sin. Right. If you have a faulty hamartiology, where do you start? Right? So we believe certainly that God is sovereign, working in all things, working out all things according to the counsel of his will. Right? Ephesians 1, chapter 11. So God has a decreed plan. He has a counsel he's working out. So why sin? Well, we're told that we brought sin into the world, right? Romans five twelve. Sin and death entered the world through one man, and it spread to all men. So every single tragedy that's occurred is ultimately our fault because we brought sin into the world. Yes, it may be decreed by God. Can I understand how that works? Well, no. But sin brought tragedy and suffering and pain into the world. That's the cause of it. And we find that in the scriptures, in the Bible. 
Secondly, what is God's response to tragedy and suffering? God's response, I believe, is both personal and provisional. Right? What's God's response? If you look at all the other religions that I talked about, when I briefly went over those four different, uh, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, okay, I went through those. Where is God in the picture for the other religions? Where is he? He's distant. For the deist, he's wound up the clock, and he's, he's nowhere to be found. He might intervene, intervene every, every once in a while. Biblical Christianity, the gospel tells us that God made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He lived among us in a sin-cursed world. Not only did he live among us, he suffered among us. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering that our Savior went through. Surely Jesus took up our pain and bore our suffering. He just didn't come in and say, I'm going to take care of things. He lived in our sin-cursed world, and then he suffered for us in a sin-cursed world. So, so God is personal. He's different than God's of all the other religions. But God is also provisional. He made provision to end tragedy and suffering once and for all. Why? Because he dealt with the problem that brought tragedy and suffering into the world. He dealt with that problem by nailing his son to the cross. The greatest tragedy that ever occurred, okay, the greatest suffering that ever occurred, occurred on the cross of Calvary. Acts 2.23 really brings it together. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. It wasn't just being nailed to the cross. It was, it was the wrath of the Father against the sin of those who had placed their faith in him. Untold suffering. The greatest tragedy that ever... Why is it the greatest tragedy? Because the Son of God was nailed to the cross. So we see that God's response is personal. I believe it's provisional, but it's also purposeful. And I can go through all the reasons why you know, God has a purpose in, 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 our, in tragedies and suffering that we endure. Right? You can probably list a lot of them too. Right? We know in Romans 8, he's conforming us to the image of his Son through these things. 2 Corinthians 4, right? For this light, momentary troubles, they're achieving for us an eternal weight that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is not what is seen, but what is unseen, right? This eternal weight of glory is being, is being built up through the suffering. We also see the purpose as God brings closure, as, as he brings us to a place where we will never deal with pain and suffering again. Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So how does this bring help to the people in Sutherland Springs? They need to know that one day this kind of thing will never happen again. They need to know right, that the suffering that they're enduring as they go through this, this, this crisis, God has a purpose in it. They need to know that sin has been dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ. 
once and for all. Christianity is far and away the greatest response to tragedy and suffering. We have a proper understanding of sin, why tragedy and suffering occur, and we see a proper response to that by God through the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your great love that you demonstrated to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray now for the, the, the church in Sutherland Springs not just that Baptist church, Father, certainly our prayers go out to them, but we want to pray for all the churches around them that no doubt are trying to love them and reach out to them. Uh, Lord, we pray that um, grace would abound, that love would abound more and more. Uh, Lord, we ask that the pastors in the area would have great discernment in how they can minister to this church. Lord, we can't imagine the, the suffering and the mourning that's happening right now, Lord. And, and we place uh, that church in your hands. You know who among those who died were your children. And Lord, I pray that you would use uh, this tragedy in ways that we can't understand. But first and foremost, that the gospel would spread because of it. And that you would be glorified, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.